Hello to all and welcome to another edition of Bill's Facebook Studies. We do this every Tuesday and Thursday afternoon live on my Facebook page. Uh, Bill Allen is my name uh, today because I am at work. I'm coming to you from the beautiful downtown Tyler area where it is a wonderful 70 degrees or so and uh, just a beautiful gorgeous day today. We are uh, continuing our study on Tuesdays and Thursday afternoons live at 3 p.m. on my Facebook page. Then it posts, of course, stays on my page uh, for a while after that. Um, uh, and then uh, you can scroll down and see them, uh, all the past ones. Then we also post it and share it on our West Irwin Church of Christ and West Irwin Live Facebook pages, as well as our uh, website, our live streaming page, under uh, at westerwin.com, west Irwin, Irwin with an E-R-W-I-N.com, and then you get on our social media and resources link and go to our live streaming page, scroll down below the blue box where it is if it's live on Sunday mornings at 10, and then you go down and you'll find a, a video archive link, and that gives you to all of the previous lessons here at West Irwin as well as on my Facebook lessons. So uh, lots of options there. Hope that you're able to take advantage of that. Appreciate you uh, watching, whether you're watching right now live or watching a little bit later uh, today or uh, this week. Uh, as I said, we do this every Tuesday and Thursday afternoon. And what we're doing is we're following uh, the daily Bible reading plan of F. Lagarde Smith in his wonderful book, uh, The Daily Bible in Chronological order. It gets you through the whole Bible in 365 days of readings. There's probably three or four chapters on average uh, that you would read and uh, doesn't take very long. And then he offers some helpful hints that uh, you can look at and consider. Uh, not too many so that it doesn't slow you down, but also uh, some historical perspective and, and just to keep you uh, getting, keeping your bearings straight. It is in chronological order. And so that means we've been doing a lot of skipping around. Uh, in Genesis, it was easy, right? <laughs> Most of Exodus, pretty easy. But then all of a sudden we started jumping around from Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy because uh, all of those passages deal with uh, things about the laws of Moses and ultimately Moses' final discourses before he climbs up Mount Nebo and never comes back down. And then uh, the Israelites cross the Jordan River under Joshua's leadership and begin taking over the promised land that had been promised to Abraham generations before. And they finally are able to fulfill that promise and take the land themselves. And we will begin reading about that conquest on March the 7th, and so that will be good. And we read about the death of Moses a couple of days later. So we'll see some of that next week, but this week we're still very deep into the laws of Moses. And uh, if you're still reading, still hanging in there with me, good job, because I know it's hard. I know this is hard reading. It's going to be hard reading when we get to uh, uh, Joshua and Judges, too. It's wonderful narrative, exciting, uh, entertaining almost as you read about some of those weird characters that God used in the book of Judges. But in the books of Joshua and Judges, uh, there's a lot of bloodshed. So uh, be ready for that. Be prepared for that. But for now, we're still... Again, very deep in the law, laws of Moses. And it's based on the Ten Commandments. That becomes the core. I like the way Lagarde Smith does this as he goes through these laws. Uh, he, he connects them with those Ten Commandments, and we see that 
in, a, in a very good and healthy way. Uh, remember, one of the things to remember, especially at this time, as we're looking through all of these laws, and there are hundreds of them, uh, ultimately, as we look at these laws, we are reminded that at this time, uh, the people of God are a theocracy. Now, they're not a uh, official nation yet. They, they pretty much are. But they don't have a king, and they don't have a lot of uh, structure to them. They don't even have a land yet. They're just a people, but they're a people that are governed by a theocracy, which means that they are governed by the law of God. The same laws of God are the same ones that are um, the law of the land. And we see that consistently uh, to, a, to a degree here in this country because our laws, I think, are based on the laws of God, uh, ethically, morally, uh, to a degree. But um, how we treat each other, and we're reading some about that this week, and that's a very big concern for God. Uh, but in a theocracy versus a democracy or a democratic republic like the United States of America is, we realize that um, uh, it's, it's different. As a preacher, I, I think it's a sin if you deliberately miss church. I, I think that's a sin. I think scripture is clear on that. Hebrews 10 and in other places, we see that very clearly. And we need people to be in church. Uh, and, and people need to be in church. I get that. You know, I think that's part of why God established the church. So I think if we deliberately just skip and miss because we don't want to go, uh, we don't want to worship the Lord with other Christians, um, I, I think that's sinful. But I don't think it should be against the law of the land. I don't think it should be in our Constitution as an amendment that says every person needs to be in church on Sunday. And if not, then they, are, uh, they could face charges. Well, I think that's a little too far. But that's the difference between a theocracy and a democratic republic, for example. If you broke the Sabbath, as we're reading, uh, in the days of Moses, then um, uh, it was the death penalty. That was, that's, that's what the Old Testament important for us to remember that as we read through these laws and have a great respect for it. Remember also that we're around 1,400 and um, 500 years before King David. And so we still have a long way to go before Israel does call for a king. And we'll be talking about that in just a few minutes uh, from Deuteronomy 17. But then, um, but it's, um, you know, 3,500 or so years ago when you consider now. So I think it's important for us to remember that as we go along and read through these laws. Uh, we find laws that are religious, laws that are ceremonial, laws that have to do with how the Israelites were to treat each other, laws of hygiene uh, to keep the community safe, to keep the individuals and the families safe. Uh, there are laws about weights and measures uh, to make sure that they're fair uh, and that they don't defraud each other. I think that's very significant. And it's clear that God cares how we live our lives. He cared about it in Moses' day. He cares about it in Jesus' day. He cares about it today. Because God wants us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that is right out of the law of Moses, right out of the book of Leviticus, of all places. So we, <clears throat> we recognize that this is a very special time and that these laws were very 
uh, significant in human history, in all of human history. It's just an amazing document when you consider that it comes uh, 1,500 years or so before Jesus Christ preached and taught and lived and died. So it's, it's, a, uh, it's an incredible statement. We read about uh, different sorts of crimes. We read about criminal activity, uh, such as murder. Uh, we read about uh, civil crimes, such as uh, defrauding a neighbor or doing something that, is, uh, that crosses the line for respecting the rights of each other. And so there are civil crimes that are really against um, uh, an, another individual, and there are criminal uh, crimes, crimes that are basically against the law of the land and the community and society itself. And so a lot of the law has to deal with that. In addition, there's that contrast again, as we talked a little bit last week about uh, unintentional and intentional uh, criminal activity. There's, there's a lot in there about what if you accidentally kill someone uh, rather than doing it in a premeditated first degree murder, we would say, uh, uh, type of way. Well, God considers that. And there are these six cities of refuge that God will ultimately establish, that the people will ultimately have, three on the east side, three on the west side of the Jordan River, where someone could go and receive a fair, fair hearing. And so it, it's, a, it's something that's very compassionate. There is a sense of innocent until proven guilty. There's some in here, as you know, about if someone is going to be condemned, that it needs to be by witnesses and not, and not just one. And so there's, uh, there, there's important measures in these things. And I hope as you read this, you connect that and you, and you recognize that. We read in these passages this week and, and in, the, in the next few days about all of these laws. And next week, we'll continue this uh, up until um, uh, the seventh when we get finally into uh, conquering the promised land. But part of this, such as in number six, involves our uh, daily devotional life with God. Uh, there's a, a, a passage in number six about the Nazarite vow. And some of the th interesting things about that, that call on uh, a man, if he's wanting to uh, take a vow as a Nazarite, then what he is to do is he is to abstain from grapes and wine and all of that, the fruit of the vine, all of that. He is to uh, not cut his hair or his beard uh, and, and that is supposed to be a, a vow that he takes for a certain amount of time. Uh, and, and we read about some that did that. Samson, for example, we'll read about in the Judges, who basically was to be a Nazarite uh, from birth, from the womb. Uh, same with John the Baptist in the New Testament. And a little bit later in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul uh, joins in with some uh, who have taken a vow, and we read uh, about that in a couple of places in the book of Acts. So those were not supposed to be things that you did that were already required, <laughs> such as, well, my, I, I, my cow had this calf, and it's the firstborn, and so I vow that I'm going to give that to the Lord. Well, they were already supposed to dedicate that firstborn to the Lord. And so that's, um, you know, a vow and a sacrifice is something that costs you something. And, and so this was something that was going to be special and, uh, and important. Um, we remember that the Israelites were called to fast on the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur, but that was the only day they had to fast. And so at times, if they decided to do that as an act of devotion, then 
then that's understandable. A lot of people will be doing that starting tomorrow on Ash Wednesday because um, that's 40 days before uh, the Passover, 40 days before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus on Passover weekend, uh, which this year, Easter Sunday, is April the 17th. And so some people will deliberately take a, a vow, in a sense. They will um, uh, deny themselves. They will fast from something. And I've participated in that at times. There's, it's not anything that you have to do. It doesn't make you more spiritual than anyone else. You certainly don't do it to be seen by others. That's condemned by Jesus very clearly in Matthew 6. But Jesus uh, seems to indicate in, during, in the Gospels that his disciples will fast. They will, they will do that at times. And I think it's important for us to do that. Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 9, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after preaching to everyone else, I myself won't become condemned. And so it's an act of self-discipline. It's a reminder to our bodies that the body is the slave and we are the master, or rather God is the master. And so there are some things that are perfectly fine to have, but you decide that for a given period of time, you will not indulge in that freedom. And, uh, and so I think that's something that's a good act of self-discipline. And I don't want to condemn anyone for taking part uh, in uh, a vow or in um, uh, a fast of some sort. I know Jesus said when he was asked about vows, he said, look, just say yes or no. Let your yes be yes. Stand by your word when it comes to taking vows and oaths. Uh, but at the same time, there's a teaching again in the New Testament that indicates sometimes uh, Christians, people, followers, disciples of Jesus would, would do that. So again, it's not something we can require. It's not something that uh, uh, we are better than somebody else or more spiritual than somebody else because we either do that or don't do that. Um, I could argue both of those <laughs> depending on which way I was going at the time. Uh, but actually, neither it makes you any better before God, but it, it is something that you can do uh, as a part of your devotional life towards God. You don't ring your own bell about it. You don't make a big deal about it, uh, but you can uh, do something that will allow yourself uh, to be reminded that your devotion is ultimately to God. And so I, I think those are, you know, those are okay things. Uh, there's, there's nothing wrong about that. Again, unless you feel like you're uh, superior spiritually to someone who doesn't participate, or um, if you um, require others to do that. Um, but one of the things the Old Testament is pretty clear on is if you make a vow, then keep it. It's better not to vow than to make a vow and not keep it. And so um, uh, it, the Nazarite vow was uh, not something required of the Israelites, but many apparently uh, would do that. Um, and then uh, another aspect that we read about in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 27, involves the inheritance. They're talking a lot about inheriting the land. As you know, Moses on the east side of the Jordan has conquered a couple of kings, Sihon and Og. And they were able to take over their land. And uh, uh, some of the tribes said, hey, you know, we like this. We're going we're gonna to set up shop here. And we're going to leave our women and children here and build this up. And, and, and we'll go across the Jordan when it's time to uh, go to war and get the, the land conquered that will go to our brothers and other tribes. 
uh, but this is where we want our inheritance to be. Well, in the midst of all of that discussion about inheritance uh, comes this particular case. And it's very interesting. It's about a man named Zelophehad who died in the wilderness and didn't have a son. He only had daughters. And for the Israelites in 1400 BC, that was a big deal. And now the question comes, okay, what about his inheritance? Who gets it? Or does no one get it? And what about his daughters? What, what do you do about them? So it's a legitimate question, and it's talked about in Numbers uh, chapter 27. The daughters of Zelophehad, verse 1, uh, uh, they were from this, the uh, tribe of Manasseh, one of the sons of Joseph. He had Ephraim and Manasseh. And so it says that they came forward, and then verse 2 says, They stood before Moses and Eleazar the priest, the high priest, the son of Aaron, who had already died, the leaders and the whole assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting, and they said, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among Korah's followers who banded together against the Lord, but he died for his own sin and left no sons. In other words, he wasn't part of that rebellious group that challenged Moses and called him out, but they, their father did die. He was older, and he did not uh, was not able to cross into the promised land, but his daughters were younger, and they were not included in the sinful uh, part of, of the people, and so they were allowed to enter the promised land. And so they asked this question in verse 4, Why should our father's name disappear from his, his clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives. So Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to him, What Zelophehad's daughters are saying is right. <laughs> They're right. Uh, you must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and give their father's inheritance to them. And so we get another law. Verse 8, Say to the Israelites, If a man dies and leaves no son, give his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. Remember, we've read some about leveret marriage, where if a man dies and he doesn't have a child to continue his name and his inheritance and his heritage, then his brother, uh, the next younger brother, uh, is his first child is to be uh, continue on uh, that brother's, that deceased brother's line. Uh, if he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his father's brothers, his uncles. If his father had no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relative in his clan that he may possess it. That This is to have the force of law for the Israelites as the Lord commanded Moses. So it was a very serious thing. But remember, it begins with these daughters, these wonderful uh, godly women uh, whose father passed away in the wilderness, and now is there, he is not going to be able to go into the promised land. Ultimately, when uh, the sons of Joseph receive their inheritance, Ephraim and the rest of the tribe of Manasseh, uh, they will, what about them? They say, what about us? What about our father's name? And sure enough, this is the law that says, yeah, yeah, you need to give them the land that would have been given uh, to their father. It's not right for his name to be crossed out of the history of the people of Israel simply because he had no son and only daughters. So, so that continues on. And then in Numbers 36, as they're talking further about this, there's more questions about it. And, and they say, well, you know, who are they supposed to marry? And what happens if they marry outside of their tribe, outside of the tribe of Manasseh? And what happens to their inheritance then? Uh, legitimate questions that are dealt with in Numbers 36. And then in Joshua chapter 17, 
their names are brought up again. And this time it's when Joshua is, to, is parceling out the land for inheritance. And he gets to the tribe of Manasseh, and sure enough, Zelophehad's daughters are there, and they're able to receive uh, a, a part of that inheritance as well. And so there's lots of things like this that we're reading about, and I want to read one more uh, today before we close, and it is found in, num- in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy now, chapter 17. Um, remember, the Israelites have no king. Moses is their leader uh, until he dies, and then Joshua will be their leader, and we'll read about that incredible transfer of power uh, when Moses and the people and God all tell Joshua the same thing, be strong and courageous uh, at the end of Deuteronomy in the first few chapters of Joshua. Um, but for now, it's, it, it, there is no leader and, other than Moses, and ultimately King Saul will be made king Um, In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people will clamor for a king. They'll say, we want to be like all the nations around us and have a king. We don't have a king. We want a king. And so God tells Samuel, the prophet and judge at the time, well, you know, I've warned the people about this, and I want you to warn them about this, but we'll do it. And and in the chapters that follow, Saul is the first uh, king of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin, uh, same tribe as the tri- as the man Saul of Tarsus, who would become uh, the apostle Paul. Um, but before we ever get there, before Moses even dies, there is teaching about um, about what to do when the people want a king, and so that's found in Deuteronomy 17, and we'll read this passage starting in verse 14. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He is not to take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And we know that one of the great kings of Israel, before they divide into two kingdoms in the north and in the south, there are three kings before that time that served a united kingdom. Saul was the first one, and then he rejected the Lord and was himself rejected. And so King David became king, and, and the line of David became the royal line. And after King David, Solomon, his son, uh, a son with Bathsheba, uh, not the one when he committed adultery with her, that son died, uh, but the, um, the, uh, a later son, Solomon, became king. And as we know, uh, Solomon uh, did not follow these, uh, these commands. He he had many wives, and they led him astray into idolatry. He had uh, wives from other nations who served other gods, and it was his downfall. He had lots and lots of wealth, uh, lots of wealth. And even though he started out good and humble and asked for wisdom when God gave him uh, a, a, a willingness to grant any wish that he had, and he asked for wisdom, good job, good on you, Solomon. But later on, uh, that humility seems to have left him. And, um, and, and so what God says here is exactly what happened to King Solomon. But there's something else that I want us to really notice before we close today. 
And that's in verse, starting in verse 18 of Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. When the king takes the throne, when he takes the throne of his king, of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. It's amazing to me that according to the law, when you when you do decide that you want a king, you want to pick the king that God chooses, needs to be one of your own people. And one of the first chores of that, that that king is to do is to write the laws of Moses himself on a scroll. To have a not just a handwritten copy, but his a copy written in his own hand to write those things down and to keep them with him all the time, to never let him himself uh, depart from that law, to not think of himself as too big for his britches, as my mother might have said, uh, to where he doesn't feel like he has to know the law and he can do what he wants because he's the king. Well, God says you need to keep this law close to your heart and you need to keep it always before you so that you don't turn away from it to the right or to the left and you don't, you don't consider yourself better than any other Israelite because all, even the king, all are under God's law. It's a great statement to the king. It's a great reminder to us of the importance of God's word, that even the king of Israel was to handwrite it himself and keep that copy close to him always so that he would not drift far away from the word and will and law of God. May we keep that law of God close to our heart. Uh, thankfully, we don't have to observe all these laws we're reading about. But the, the law that we are under today is that, that law of the spirit of life that Romans 8 says. God has set us free from the law that brings slavery and death and has now brought us into the law that gives. Uh, with um, this wonderful souls and people, the children and adults in Ukraine, those who are from Russia who are in the midst of something that I fear most all of them have no idea uh, what this was supposed to be. And, um, and now here we are. And so as we close today, let's, let's offer a prayer to God uh, for them and for us as we seek to serve the Lord, uh, the giver of all life. Father, we pray for those in Ukraine. We pray for those in Russia. We pray for those in the surrounding nations. We pray for us here. Father, we ask that you would be with the leaders uh, of these nations, President Zelensky, President Putin, our own president, President Biden. And we just pray, Father, for all the nations that you will help us to be able to find a way uh, to resolve this with the least amount of damage, and especially, Father, the least amount of loss of life and innocent life. Father, we see the people of Ukraine, and I know them. I've seen them firsthand. And so, Father, we just pray that you would protect them and shelter them and that your will would be done and that through everything that happens, uh, that your world would become a better place, a place that will 
be closer to what you want us to be, to have a greater respect for life, to have a greater love for our neighbor. Father, we just pray. We just pray that you would act in that situation and in all the other things that are close to our hearts this afternoon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May God bless you as you keep God's word close to your heart every day. I'll see you on Thursday.